3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is the 23rd of May, 7am. My name is Carnegie and I'm joined in the studio today by Ashikin and Ivka. Morning. Morning. <laughs> morning. How is everyone? Yeah, I'm good. good. <laughs> yep. Ivka came in with a bike this morning, and I thought you were Gab for like a hot two seconds. <laughs> I typically don't wear my glasses in the morning just because I want my head to be free. I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> like it's just too heavy. It's too much for me. Um, but yeah, how was your morning, Kaneki? Um, it was good. It was um, not as cold as I thought, so that's great. Oh, it's quite nice outside. Yeah. 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 How was your bike ride? It was delightful, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like this morning I left about two minutes earlier than I normally do, and so it was quite relaxing. Normally oh. I'm in quite the rush to get here. I know. How much difference does that two minutes make? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm always in a rush, I feel, and then every once in a while I'm like, I have two minutes. No, it's a luxury. It's such a luxury. <laughs> All right. Um, should we talk about what's coming up on the show this morning? So this morning we're going to start at 7.15 by speaking with Lysel Thomas from uh, a community organising group in the western suburbs of Melbourne called the Maribyrnong Truck Action Group and they've been campaigning for the last decade to reduce pollution levels in Melbourne's west which are alarmingly high. So we'll be speaking with Lysel this morning about that. Um we will then be speaking at 7.45 with artist Janet Bromley. Janet is a First Nations artist um, who is a part of a group called uh, Nardangiri Kalat Mimini, or NGKM, which is a collective of First Nations women, and they've just recently um, created an incredible, huge structure, um, a sculpture outside of the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. So she'll be on the show to discuss that. And then at 8 o'clock, we'll be joined by Claire and Sophia from Wellways. They will be chatting to us about their annual public lecture, which is being held this Thursday at the Wheeler Centre. Amazing. And as always, we'll be playing all kinds of amazing music. And we'll be right back with news headlines after this message. Things need topping up every now and then. More tea, auntie. Thanks, Bob. Including your COVID protection. If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID-19 booster. It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID-19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID-19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. 
Hey, so today's news headlines is pretty interesting. It's my last day.、Um, I'm actually an intern here at BCR, and、um, I really wanted to kind of head out with a bang and head our current affairs sort of headlines with a bit of direction. So obviously, the Victorian budget is coming out. And Victoria's independent parliamentary budget office has counted more than 17.2 billion dollars worth of Andrews government programs that would be cut in today's state budget. So this is funding for 372 initiatives that cover essential services like road maintenance, education, domestic violence, disability support, and emergency health, and they're all due to expire at the end of this financial year, which is June 30th. Unless it's extended by Treasurer Jim,、um, Treasurer Tim Pallas, these programs include funding 30.7 million for transporting students with disabilities, 26.3 million for the solar homes boost, 250 million in power saving bonus, 5.7 million to improve health access for refugees and asylum seekers. Five million to support timber workers and 2.7 million for Victorian State Emergency Services volunteer training. The Parliamentary Budget Office determined that these initiatives are unlikely to be continued. Labor's budget thus far has been one that rules for the wealthy and acts as a tool not only to demoralise and lower the expectations of, but to punish the poor, to punish the working class and ordinary people. Just because a party has the word Labor plastered on, does not mean living conditions will get any better for workers. And I think it's arguably even more crucial to be actively critiquing this quote-unquote left-wing workers' government, especially while living standards are being slashed. It'll be very important to keep up campaigns. Actions, protests, and strikes against these government attacks, and we've got a lineup of exciting actions to set the tone. If you'd like to get started with your activism journey, spoiler alert: it's a big week of action, so we've got you covered. At 10 a.m. tomorrow, there will be a free Julian Assange rally at Hyde Park in Sydney. Julian is a journalist and founder of WikiLeaks,、uh, WikiLeaks, a media organization that specializes in analysis, publication, and dissemination of restric- restricted documents. He published half a million classified documents exposing several countries of their blatant imperialism, such as the vile mass murder of civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan, which sparked outrage and shifted public opinion worldwide. He's been arbitrarily、uh, detained by authorities since 2010, currently locked up in one of London's toughest prisons, Belmarsh. And for more than 1,500 days, Julian Assange has been waiting behind bars in London under the threat of extradition by、um, U- the U.S., where he faces a 175-year sentence on espionage charges for leaking classified military documents. Yesterday, while addressing the National Press Club, Stella Assange said the life of her husband is in the hands of Australian government, as she pleaded for Canberra to do more to influence the U.S. to stop the pursuit. Join the protest if you're around Sydney. It's happening tomorrow. But for those who are non-based like myself. Extinction Rebellion are hosting their annual event, Occupy for Climate 2023, pledging to build resistance, disrupt business as usual, and take non-violent action. This year, they will occupy Parliament Gardens in Melbourne continuously for three days and three nights on Thursday the 25th, Friday the 26th, and Saturday the 27th of May. There will be workshops. Discussion groups and training. You can sign up to be part of their overnight occupations or daytime actions, 
or both. Head to the Extinction Rebellion Australia website for more information. After some daytime action on the first day of Occupy for Climate, which is on the Thursday, you can also head down for Wellways Public Theatre um, Public Lecture from 6 to 8:30 p.m. The theme of this event is Being Human: Exploring Humane Responses to Distress, and will be a conversation about new ways of thinking about the experience of a mental health crisis and how we can respond in different ways. Stay tuned for our interview with. Claire Conlon and Sophia Kapek from Wellways coming up later at 8 a.m. Okay, so it's Friday now. It'll be Friday, so Occupy for Climate is still happening, but you'd like to check out activism around other issues too. Starting from last Friday, Scrap the Cap, a campaign for international student work rights, will be running solidarity booths at the State Library of Victoria every Friday after work, so 6 p.m. onwards. This comes as student visa holders will be restricted to working no more than 48 hours per fortnight. A change coming into force on the 1st of July. In a statement, they've said the work hours cap does not prevent student visa holders from working. It simply excludes them from reliable part-time or full-time work and forces them to take up casual and insecure jobs. Lifting the work hours cap and putting student visa holders on an equal footing means that they will be able to speak up and fight for better wages and conditions, no matter their visa status. They organised their first protest rally in front of Minister Andrew Giles's office in Thomastown on the 10th of May, which was a success. Videos garnered thousands of views on Twitter for this event alone. In the coming weeks, even lobbying, education activities, and various advocacy work will continue. Last but not least, we've got quite a topical and important meeting about building an anti-war movement now before it's too late. This one will be happening on Saturday, the third of June, at Victorian Trades Hall. We all know the Labor government has signed to spend $368 billion worth of taxpayers' money on nuclear offensive submarines. Not only that. A ramping up of the Australian Army, extending its ability to strike targets more than 500 kilometres away, which has gone up drastically from its previous 40-kilometre range. The presence of U.S. bases like Pine Gap and increasing numbers of U.S. troops on Australian territory are all signs that lay the base for war. Victorian socialists are standing against the AUKUS deal, the U.S. alliance. Nuclear submarines and are fighting to have billions spent on welfare instead, housing, healthcare, education, etc. So some of the speakers、um, featured on this night is pretty in- interesting. Arthur Rorris, who is the secretary of the South Coast Labor Council, and that's Labor with a U, who recently led a May Day rally of thousands in Wollongong against AUKUS and proposed nuclear sub ba- at, at the proposed nuclear sub base at Port Kembla. Um, Verity Bergman, a professor of politics at Monash University, who since the 70s actively supported the anti-apartheid campaign, anti-nuclear campaign, and defended public education, she's written on revolutionary industrial unionism, the IWW, about green bans, the Builders' Labour Federation, more commonly known as the BLF, and more generally the rise of socialism in Australia.、Um, last but not least, on this sort of jam-packed.、Uh, 
guest list, Dave Sweeney, an anti-nuclear campaigner um, who has written on nuclear waste, mining, weapons and indigenous rights. He's part of the Australian Conservation Foundation and co-founded ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. Plus, there's way more speakers too. Um, you can grab your tickets if you head to victoriansocialist.org.au forward slash stop the drive to war or just head to their Facebook page, Victorian Socialists. So that is my little lineup for anyone who's listening and wants to get into activism. And that's all for my news headlines for today. Thank you for that, Ash, again. And I'm so sad it's your last day today. We're going to miss you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's been really fun um, going into, like, the headlines, deep diving and listening to your amazing interviews. So thanks for having me, guys. Of course. You're welcome back anytime. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back with our first interview after these messages. Oh, who's that from? A quick look won't hurt. What time are you picking up? Kate. Oh, damn it. Saw you on your phone. Licence, please. Pick up your phone while you're driving and it's a $555 fine and four demerit points. Distracted drivers can be caught anywhere, anytime. A message from the TAC. Drive safely for everyone. A 3CR supporter. The Milky Way looks good in the night sky. The stars open a short warm my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. I'm dreaming of the seven moons. Oh, I see what's new. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. So earlier this month, The Guardian reported that a health emergency has been declared by Maribyrnong Council for residents of Melbourne's western suburbs, um, claiming rates of illness in the municipality due to pollution, which considerably exceeds the Australian average. Maribyrnong Truck Action Group is a community lobby advocating for a reduction in the number of trucks on residential streets in Melbourne's inner west to improve the community's well-being. The group's treasurer and advocate, Liesl Thomas, is joining us on the show this morning to talk about the group's 10-year campaign to reduce pollution in the west. Welcome to the show, Liesl. Thank you. So can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about the group? How did it come about and how long have you been a part of it? Well... Sadly, it is actually a lot more than 
10 years. Um, the group formed in about 2005. Um, I joined about three years later when I moved to the inner west and uh, have been campaigning ever since to do something about the trucks that are on residential streets in the city of Maribyrnong. Um, we're a volunteer group made up of residents that are really concerned about their health. Absolutely. I mean, it's been reported that, you know, adolescent asthma rates are 50% higher than the state average and hospital admission rates are 70% higher than the Australian average for those aged between 3 and 19. This is all, you know, quite concerning. Can you tell us a bit about the campaigning that the group has done so far and what the response has been? Yeah, look, I mean, the health statistics are really terrifying. We've got above average rates of lung cancer, premature mortality for respiratory system disease, heart disease and so on. Um, we're actually a, a younger than average population. We have average socioeconomic status, average smoking rates, average obesity levels, all those things that people say um, impact on health. And yet our health statistics are actually a lot more representative of, a, of an elderly, unwell population than the young population mm. that we are, which is, which is really terrifying. So, um, you know, we've been banging on about this health issue since 2006 when we had a health forum brought together experts to uh, talk about these issues and yet it's taken decades for that message to really get through. Uh, the other thing that we've done is lots of writing letters, lots of meetings, lots of petitions and perhaps what we're, we're most well known for is actually protest actions. So we get out on the streets, we lie on the streets when we're concerned about the impact of trucks on our sleep patterns and we show that, that we cannot sleep with these trucks rumbling past us. Um, we block traffic to really bring attention to, to the issue and it's the thing that has actually, over those years, had uh, the local council, the state government and the federal government listen to what we're saying. Um, I mean, you know, at 3CR, we're big fans of community um, action and especially action that, you know, brings people out into the street. Um, you ran a successful campaign for a track curfew in areas of Footscray and Yarraville, which, you know, it has happened. Um, has this curfew made a difference? And can you tell us a bit about the campaign? Look, it certainly has helped. Um, we have, I think the statistics are 22,000 trucks a day running within metres of houses, schools and childcare centres. Uh, these are trucks that are primarily accessing the Port of Melbourne. So they're coming from industrial areas through residential areas to the Port of Melbourne. The couple of the streets that they use have schools on them so one of the things that we campaigned for was during those hours when kids are coming to and from school that the trucks not use those roads and that it, at very minimum that truck traffic is happening outside of those areas to at least make those streets slightly safer for the children who are coming, families that are coming to and from school. Unfortunately, they're still thundering past those schools during the school day and 
spewing out the diesel pollution and having the impact on the air uh, on those students while they are at school, which is which is quite disturbing. Absolutely. And, you know, as you just mentioned, in addition to air pollution and, you know, the health risks we've discussed, there are also concerns of noise pollution and road safety for residents and cyclists and children. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, these are things that are very concerning for our community. And it is the reason why people will come to a protest and wave signs and, and, and stand up and say, this is actually not good enough. We need our health protected. Um, we're often told, well, if you don't like it, you can move. But what does that mean for the new family that moves into my house? They have to suffer the problem too. This, this isn't a solution. That, that, that It isn't a problem that can be solved by people moving. That, that just doesn't work for an entire community. And we have a very, very strong evidence base to show that this is a real, real problem. And I think that's one of the other things that has been very effective in our campaign is that we are well respected by the state government as a lobby group, for example, that knows what it is talking about. And that's been really helpful too. And I think it's one of the other reasons why the community will come out and wave signs and stand on street corners and stand in front of trucks on roads, that's a scary thing for for people to do. Mm. But because we are well-researched, well-evidence-based, they know that they are on, on the right side of the story. And I should clarify too, when we do these protests, we do them with the full cooperation of the police. We don't just walk out in the middle of a street in front of a great big truck. Mm. Um, we, we make sure that we do everything above the board and again, that's one of the reasons why uh, we are so supported by our community. Definitely. And, you know, you touched on the research um, and evidence that you do have back in your arguments. Um, you know, last year in August, the Grattan Institute released a report warning that pollutions from trucks kill more than 400 Australians a year and contribute to a variety of diseases. And they specifically talked about the city of Maribyrnong. Um, one of their uh, recommendations is that they're calling for it to be a low emission zone. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so we've got in Australia one of the oldest truck fleets in um, in, in the world, really. Um, so, so these are trucks that don't have the sort of pollution controls that more modern trucks have. And there are cities in the world that have, in fact, hundreds of cities in the world that have low emission zones, which essentially are areas where it's not possible or not, not permittable for these old trucks to go into those areas. Um, there's a clean truck program, for example, um, at um, the port of Long Beach in Los Angeles, and that low emission zone has reduced air pollution by 90% in, in a, you know, a matter of years. So it can be done, it absolutely can be done, and yet those low emissions, the idea of a low emission zone, for example, which would ban trucks, um, you know, that, that were built before 2003, um, it is seen as radical in, in Melbourne, and yet we think that that would be a, a really positive step to protect this area. Um, it's 
you know, new trucks are, uh, are not going to solve the safety issue, but it certainly would go a long way to dealing with the problem of um, diesel emissions. Certainly. And, um, you know, you did mention this has been ongoing since 2005, um, the fight to reduce the pollution levels in the West. Why do you think it's taken this long? Uh, I guess it's been very difficult when there isn't an obvious other route. The fastest route between the growing container yards Mm. in the western areas of Melbourne and the port is through our municipality. And the option of going over the Westgate Bridge and over the Balti Bridge that has tolls. And so that has an impact on the bottom line of the operators that are running those routes. They, the container trucks run on pretty small margins and so they argue that they can't afford to use the Balti Bridge, which has, which has a toll. Um, so that's, that's been um, very difficult for us to, to fight that fight. And it sadly has taken this long for the health message to really um, make its mark. When the, um, the Westgate Tunnel, for example, was being um, proposed, we lobbied very hard for the, uh, the stacks that will, will let the, the emissions from the tunnel out uh, for that to be filtered. And that isn't happening. It's, it's something that we are continuing to lobby for. Those stacks are being constructed so that filtration could be retrofitted. It could be added later on. Mm. Our argument is do it now. This project is costing billions of dollars. Do it now. It's not going to be acceptable to push those trucks into that tunnel and then have all the diesel emissions come out of stack and fall down on our community again. So, again, this is um, one of the real real challenges that we've had for all of all of those years. It's it's frustrating. It is frustrating, but we continue on. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so frustrating, and I wonder, you know. Historically, Melbourne's West and Footscray in particular has had, you know, a bit of a reputation and has been um, home to lots of waves of migration and low socioeconomic, um, you know, historically, which is changing now because of the development happening in the West. But you do have to wonder if that plays a part in how long this has taken. Yeah, look, yes, yes. We, we often will say, mm, yeah, I wonder if all of these trucks were thundering past houses in Brighton, how, yeah, how exactly. something would happen. Um, so we do, we do feel forgotten at times. Um, our, our local state member uh, at the moment um, is certainly advocating very hard on our behalf, uh, but they are obviously, you know, they, they, yeah, it's a, it's a big, it's a big, challenge um and what we're being told is oh but the westgate tunnel that will solve all your problems Mm. and i think that's what is very important about this declaration of the health emergency it's actually saying we can't wait saying of the tunnel's coming and remember this is a tunnel with stacks that aren't filtered but to say the tunnel's coming in a few years everything will be all right then no, it's a health emergency. 
something needs to happen now. What about a low emission zone? Why can't we go down that path? We need to do something about these trucks and particularly these old, old clappers that, um, you know, are, are just spewing out the sort of diesel emissions that um, really are totally unacceptable. Absolutely. I mean, as a resident of the West, and, you know, I really love living in the West, I um, am just so grateful that, you know, this group exists and is committed to this campaign. Um, what's next for, you know, M- M- is it MTAG? MTAG. Yeah, right. what's next for MTAG? Yeah, look, we, we, we continue, we will continue on. We, we feel very heartened. And we did, for a while, our campaign felt quite depressing we were we were talking often about how terrible it was and a turning point for us was when we realized no this is a good news story in that this is an awesome place to live there is just this one problem and we need to solve this one problem and then we can all live happily in, in this amazing amazing inner west inner west community so we'll continue to push. We certainly feel like we've turned the corner. There's been a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of the recognition of this health problem, and we're certainly going to jump on this announcement of the health emergency to start pushing hard again and say, OK, it's a health emergency. What are you doing? What are you doing now? What are you doing now? Because saying, oh, we'll do so-and-so in the future, we'll make land use changes, we'll do this, we'll do that, whatever. Not good enough. It's an emergency. What are you doing now? Absolutely. Um, How can listeners support this campaign? Look, we're very happy to have people join um, the Maribyrnong Truck Action Group. You certainly find us on um, the internet. Very easy to find our website very, very great um, website there with lots of information. You can join our group, the more the merrier. Um, we'll then keep you up to date on what we're doing. And there's also options there. If you see smoky trucks, for example, there's options for how you can report um, report that and curfew breakers and so on. So very much encourage people to get on that website and have a look at... Um, there's also a little history page. You can go right back through all of our actions over the years and see see what we've been what we've been busy doing. But uh, yeah, we're not giving up. Uh, we are we are committed to make this place the amazing, amazing community and fabulous place uh, that 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 we all deserve. We all deserve somewhere healthy and safe to live. We all deserve clean air. Absolutely, Lisa. Um, That's unfortunately all we have time for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this issue. No problem. Thank you very much. So that was Liesl Thomas, campaigner and treasurer for the Maribyrnong Truck Action Group, talking to us about their campaigns to reduce pollution in Melbourne's West. You can learn more about MTAG by going to mtag.org.au. Next up, we're going to play you a track. Ego LMA is a Ego LMA is a R&B neo soul and contemporary jazz musician from South London. This is her song Girls Don't Always Sing About Boys. Mm-hmm. 
girls don't always sing about boys What if I wanna talk about something Maybe it'll feel some plastic happening Would anybody listen at all If I don't parade in a bra Only to get my point across I don't always think about boys Here, love is the only thing worth fighting for As well as loving the same sex Sanitary kids for homelessness Grandfather, mental health for That was Girls Don't Always Sing About Boys by Ego LMA. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, and we'll be right back after these announcements. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. 
Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very, you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. At 7.45, we'll be joined by Janet Bromley, the artist of the new sculpture out the front of the Queen Victoria Women's Centre and talking about the importance of First Nations women's art. So in the lead up to that, we're going to play you a couple of tracks by very talented First Nations women. The first one is Lady Blue by Emily Oramara. Lady Blue, feel the waves in my hair, so calm and cool. Perfect, no despair. I wish I could swim here forever, Miss Lady Blue. Me and you, run, run down the way that we go, pulling up, picking up the sand in our toes, past down. She is calling me
Another track for you now, and this one is Party Tricks by Alice Skye. Feelings for you are a 
that was Party Tricks by Alice Skye. Alice is playing at Treaty Day Out uh, this on 3rd of June, next Saturday, alongside Thelma Plum, Dan Sultan, Yothi Indy, and many more. Treaty Day Out will be held at Burnley Circus Park, NAM, again next Saturday, 3rd of June. You can head to treatydayout.com for more information. We have another track for you now. This one is called Cruisin' by Oetha. That was the 2019 track Cruisin' by Oetha, a hip-hop group made up of the super-talented Lady Lash, Miss Hood and Dizzy D. All right. We've got um, our next interview coming up. Creative Resilience is a striking four-and-a-half-metre-high sculpture created by Nardangiri Kalatmimini, or NGKM, a collective of First Nations women and trans-diverse artists from across Victoria. It now stands proudly in the heart of Nam, outside the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. Janet Bromley is a Yota Yota artist known for her use of recycled materials in her weaving projects and is one of the artists involved in creating the sculpture. She's joining us on the show this morning to talk about her work, about NGKM and creating creative resilience. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Janet. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? I know I just introduced you, but we'd love for you to introduce yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm a Yorta Yorta artist. I'm also the First Nations Arts Officer for the City of Bendigo. 
um, I've had an amazing opportunity since I moved to Bendigo, very involved in art um, and First Nations art in Bendigo. We just opened an art gallery, a First Nations art gallery in Bendigo in November last year um, on one of the group and um, very, very happy with our end result. Very, very happy indeed. Yeah, really absolutely talk about that <laughs> yeah the sculpture looks incredible um i did have a look at it last week um can you tell us what the name of the group means and the significance of of the name um the name of the group the group is a loose collective of female um art, first nations artists um across victoria with a lot of rural artists which is I think one of the really special things because uh, rural First Nations artists find it really hard to connect to um, the city and to other places. It's not as easy for us to get around. Um, And the name is representative of um, women in general. So mothers, aunties, sisters, daughters... Um, are represented in those names and it's they come from um, the original group members which when it was a smaller group a, while, a long time ago with um, words from their individual languages. That's incredible. Um, so you've been a part of creating this amazing, massive sculpture, Creative Resilience, outside of the Queen Vic Women's Centre. Can you tell us a bit about the significance of the artwork? So when we first started talking about doing this artwork, it was um, the leader of the of the group at that point of time was Georgia McGuire, and she had applied for funding. It been spoken to by um, Joe Porter. The funding for this came from the Victorian women's public art program and that program originated from conversations around work done by researcher a Latrobe researcher oh my goodness I can't remember her name and I know her really well (laughs) sorry Um, I hope she's not listening Um, about the sculptures in Melbourne how many sculptures are there in Melbourne and like 100, 110, 115 of men and six of women or seven of women and one of them was being taken down. So the representation of women in sculpture across, not just uh, Melbourne but across Victoria, was very, very minimal. And so the government took this on um, as the Victorian Women's Public Art Program and I think they sponsored or they funded six different um, groups or individuals to make representation. When we came together to talk about this, we realised as a group of women, we couldn't talk about one woman. We wanted to... um, The more we talked about it, the more we realised that it was about all of our women. Um, You know, the creative... First of all, their resilience and their strength for surviving and, and... they're the reason we're here, all of us, and 
the second part is about their resilience, their, their way they were able to adapt themselves to this new world, um, symbolised by the basket because there were women who were adapting, as you as you probably already heard, that women weren't allowed to, or Aboriginal people weren't allowed to practise their... Um, any of their... Um, I've forgotten what the word is. Any of their crafts, they weren't mm, allowed yeah. to practice their spirituality. They weren't allowed to practice anything. So they adapted what they knew to be able to support their families. And women adapted their weaving to a European style of weaving to be able to sell to, you know, feed their children. Mm. So the basket, although, um, is a beautiful symbol that it's um, up there looking lovely it was it was a way to a way to survive and we talked about that and we talked about how many women we had in our past um, who just that strength and resilience to keep going and I think that for a lot of First Nations women that when when you get yourself um, up and running, that that's what they rely on as well. The resilience of those women it comes through in our DNA, I think. Absolutely, and you know it's clearly about um, interconnectedness of all women, sort of through time, um, as well as of course the resilience of First Nations women in particular. But it's also a little bit about visibility for First Nations women and First Nations artists. You know, do you think that having this as a public work of art is a really important part of that? I think it is. I think that, um, to be truthful, I know, we knew it was big and we knew, but we didn't really... We're all makers, so we're all weavers and painters and, and, and makers... Um, with our hands and we had to pass this idea and concept on to other people to build and then we had to make sure it stayed true to what we wanted it to look like and it was a very different experience to, for us to, be, to do this as opposed to what we would normally be doing as artists and the Friday before the launch we came down from... Um, country and there was a group of us and we went and we looked at it and we and it was just amazing how it just looks like it's been there for years but clearly it hasn't been there for years because we were there when the um, the gardener was still um, completing the garden and everybody who walked past going what, what's that what's this thing here why is it here how come this is here what's what's going on it was really interesting how many people stopped and asked questions about it. Of course they would, but it didn't. We didn't really realise impact it would have, and how, although we see it as sitting in its place where it belongs, it's also bringing forth lots of conversation. And we knew that we we talked to we talked a lot about how um, this could. It, because of the place it is there in Lonsdale Street, because it's close to RMIT, because it's close to, you know, this big centre of 
movement around Melbourne that it would be um, people would take notice of it and we wanted it to be a learning experience as well. We wanted people to stop and ask questions and be able to have answers to those questions and part of what we would like to see in the future is QR codes with answers. So a QR code, what is, what is the significance of coil basket to a First Nations woman? Why is it there? Um, you know, who are who are the women in our in our past um, to tap into some of those people on a QR where where someone with a bit of curiosity can go and um, connect to it and read about those things and we hope that that's part of it in the future. We don't want it to be something that becomes stale and old and something that people just walk past because that's what we do with statues. We see them there in the first place, we might take some notice, but then after a while we go, we probably don't even see them, to be honest, and we don't want this particular sculpture to be like that. Definitely, and this will be a way for people to be able to interact with it, you know, all through, no matter how long it's there. Yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that um, for First Nations people, I don't I don't think any First Nations person will anywhere in that area driving past or walking past will not know exactly what that's a symbol for. It's just such a clear symbol. That's incredible. Um, what was the experience like working with other First Nations women? Um, we've worked together before. Um, <clears throat> we've also had COVID within all of this. It's, it's a, you know, it was a long term plan. It wasn't, um, it wasn't short term. I think it took nearly two. I think I'm pretty sure it took nearly two, two years, eighteen months, two years. We don't. Some of us live in Bendigo, and others live in other areas of Victoria. So it was. An interesting experience trying to get us together because we're all visual artists and we work better when we see each other as opposed to um, Zoom is not seeing each other like seeing each yeah. other. <laughs> so bringing the coming all together to have the one idea and the one object. So you know there might be some some particular thing that our person was quite dogged this is this is what it must be like this is this is my part that I want that this must happen and also really interestingly if it wasn't right we all knew it wasn't right mm. so our first um, our first look at what the hand might look like it was we all went no that's no good and everyone said the same thing which I found really interesting because um, when we when we were you know, pushing for our own own part of it, we were separate. Um, and when we were saw that it wasn't right, it wasn't right for all of us. So the idea was, I thought that it must look like a woman's hand. Was a really big conversation, especially we all. That that was our mandate. But to talk to the people who built it, um, how, how do you do that? What, mm. what, is, what is a woman's hand? And we did have conversations about, well, all, all hands and arms look the same. Well, no, they don't. 
And we believe now what we have, there is a woman's hand. And we were, um, we, we argued our case and, and they argued their case and then we all got together and, and did what we wanted them to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. And of course, the result is incredible as well. Um, it is a very striking structure, you know, when you walk past, you can't miss it. Um, Unfortunately, that is all the time we have this morning, Janet, but we really appreciate you talking to us um, not only about the sculpture, but about NGKM and about your own um, art practice as well. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So that was artist Janet Bromley. Um, Janet is one of the artists who helped create NGKM's Uh, new sculpture, Creative Resilience, which is located on the grounds of the Queen Victoria Women's Centre on Lonsdale Street. Um, Listeners can go check it out in the forecourt. It's open during centre hours, 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday. We'll be right back after this. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Earlier in the show, we mentioned that Wellways Australia will be hosting their annual public lecture on Thursday 25th of May at the Wheeler Centre in Nam, Melbourne, the theme of which is Being Human, Exploring Humane Responses to Distress. As many listeners will know, Wellways is one of Australia's largest and most respected mental health, well-being and carer service providers, and for more than 40 years have been working with individuals and communities experiencing disabilities or challenges to their social and emotional well-being. Joining us this morning to tell us more about this week's event are Claire, Claire Conlon, Manager Advocacy, Research and Policy, and Sophia Capeg, Communications Manager at Wellways Australia. Welcome to the show, Claire and Sophia. 
Good morning. Uh, Claire, can you begin by telling us more about Wellways and the services you provide for the community? Have we got Claire on the line? We might have lost Claire. Um, we might just go to a couple of messages and try and get Claire and Sophia back online. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 0394 8377 or donate online 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax-deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm You're listening to 3CR. Apologies for that little technical issue, but we should be joined on the line now by Claire and Sophia from Wellways Australia to talk us through the public lecture held this Thursday, 25th of May at the Wheeler Centre. Hello, Claire and Sophia. Hi, it's great to be here. This is Claire speaking. Amazing. Hi. Oh, sorry. Hi, good morning. This is Sophia as well. Thanks for having us. Thank you both for joining us. Okay, so... Claire, can you begin by telling us a bit more about Wellways and the services you provide for the community? Sure, thank you. Um, so Wellways is one of Australia's largest mental health and wellbeing and care service providers. We have services right along the eastern seaboard of Australia. 
Um, and we support people's social, emotional and physical wellbeing through our community-based services. Um, we, we've got a really proud history here at Wellways. We were founded by a community of family carers as an advocacy group. Um, and we really put people um, with lived experience at the centre to provide free, safe and inclusive um, mental health and disability services to people in their chosen communities. Mm, it's great to know that it started from people that are in the space and have experience with it. That uh, is always a really good way to start things. Uh, Absolutely. Sophia, could you talk us through the history of the Wellways Public Lecture and how it was created? Absolutely. Yeah, the um, the Public Lecture has a really um, rich history in lived experience and advocacy. Uh, it actually... Um, began with a, a man named Frank Woodcock who approached Wellways in 1999. Um, it was in response to Frank losing his son um, who lived with schizophrenia and tragically died by suicide. And Frank was looking for a way to support an organisation um, and really uh, had this vision to hold an event to challenge stigma, discrimination, sort of inspire action um, and get organisations working in, in the mental health space in the time uh, to talk about the most important issues um, and try and resolve and try and work towards ways that uh, more community support um, can be available for people living with mental health um, illness. Mm. And it's interesting that that stemmed from that lived experience that you touched on was at the basis of creating Wellness Australia, sorry, Wellways Australia. It's really, uh, lived experience has really been embedded in um, everything Wellways has done from its inception, really. Um, and it's something we um, strive to continue to sort of elevate in terms of lived experience voices and everything we do. Um, and we were fortunate that, that Frank Woodcock was, you know, um, kindly sort of donated up until his passing in 2017 to allow these lectures to uh, continue and to be and to support communities for such a long time and we've been able to come back um, uh, we had our first relaunch of the public lecture last year um, thanks to Frank Woodcock's very generous gift in will that we um, received so the, the Woodcock lecture we've now called it the Woodcock lecture in his in his name uh, is able to continue uh, this year and hopefully for many more years to come mm, so great that it can continue the theme for this year's lecture is Being Human, Exploring Humane Responses to Distress. Sophia, can you talk about the significance of this theme and why it was chosen for this year's event? I, I would love to. I think uh, Claire might be a great, um, a great spokesperson for that. It was Claire that really workshopped this theme in response to, uh, to community need at the time. Mm, and yes, please, Claire, we'd love to hear your thoughts. No worries. Um, so um, we, the Victoria Mental Health System, um, there was a Royal Commission um, into Victoria's mental health system um, in February 2021 and there were around 65 recommendations were made as a result. So there was really recognition that the system was broken and was in real need of some um, TLC. Um, really at the centre of that was the importance of uh, amplifying this experience voices. Um, and one of the things uh, in the Royal Commission was actually looking at the way we deal um, and work with people who are in distress. 
Um, and often um, distress and crisis um, are really sort of offering opportunities for connection and emergence and really the um, responses needed need to be really looked at how we can do better in the community. Um, and so really this year's topic is one that will have likely have touched many of our lives at some point. Um, it is mental distress is um, perhaps one of the most relatable human experiences that we can encounter. Um, and we really felt that this was a really important topic uh, to look at um, as, as, a, as a sector uh, working in the community. We also work with a lot of um, work in the community. We also work with the acute sector as well. Um, and we really wanted to um, challenge our thinking um, and have some thought leaders in this, in this um, particular space um, to challenge our thinking and look at ways that we can do better. Um, so the people that... We, we've actually two of our speakers, our keynote speaker, Matt Ball, um, is actually has lived experience himself, um, as well as being a, um, a professional mental health, you know, mental health nurse. And he has really dedicated his life um, to looking at ways that we can um, look at what, what he calls altered states of distress. Um, and we've got another speaker, Helena Rolenfeld, who also has lived experience and is doing a PhD um, around her own experiences of uh, distress, um, but also talking to lots of people about their experiences of distress and identifying what kind of help is the most effective in resolving mental health crisis. Um, we also felt that it was important that we had a... Um, a clinician's point of view. And we've got Professor Richard Newton, um, who is a very experienced psychiatrist, who is also going to be part of the panel. And we're really looking forward to hearing the three perspectives um, around mental distress. Hmm. And I understand that you'll be one of the speakers on for the lecture as well, Claire, is that right? So uh, not a speaker, but um, I have my own lived experience Um and I'm working in the advocacy space. I apply that lived experience to the advocacy lens. Mm -hmm. I will be facilitating the panel. Um, so I'm really looking forward to um, yeah, facilitating uh, the, the conversation, this really important conversation. Yeah, totally. Sounds amazing. So where can people go to find out more about the event? Um, yes. So uh, it's not too late to register. Actually, we have um, exhausted all of our in-person uh, tickets for the event. It's been such an overwhelmingly positive response to this year's subject. I think, it, like as Claire said, it's touched a lot of people. It affects so many people um, and so many people we love. Um, so th the online streaming is still available. Uh, you can simply go onto wellways.org forward slash event um, and click onto the Woodcock Lecture. You can register there or if you need any more information or any support um, registering or someone to support you doing that, you can email myself at communications at wellways.org and I'll certainly um, be able to reach out and, and support people to register uh, and get anything that they need. And um, it's important, I think, for us to also mention that anyone uh, coming to the event or, 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 or sort of streaming live, we have provided some really important support numbers to reach out to, um, talking about mental health distress 
can be incredibly activating for some people. And we want mm-hmm. to make sure that even though we are discussing these themes, uh, we're, we're also um, looking after those who are uh, engaging in this subject and um, attending the event with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have arranged those, uh, and that information is there for everyone attending and registering as well. Amazing, because yes, these are things that we need to talk about, but also need to acknowledge that people need support to get through these conversations a lot of the time. So that's that's awesome. Um, Absolutely. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you so much. You've just heard from Claire Conlon, Manager Advocacy Research and Policy, and Sophia Capek. Communications Manager at Wellways Australia. Claire and Sophia were on the show this morning to tell us more about the upcoming Wellways Public Lecture to be held this Thursday, 25th of May at the Wheeler Centre. For more information about this event, please go to wellways.org events or check our show notes out later this morning on the website. And remember to tune in to Brainwaves, a weekly show on 3CR presented by members of Wellways Australia. Brainwaves seeks to challenge the mainstream negative stereotypes of people with a mental illness by actively engaging those living with a mental illness as researchers, interviewers, performers and program designers while promoting community mental health awareness. The show airs on 3CR every Wednesday from 5 till 5.30. You can also check out all episodes of the show at 3cr.org.au slash brainwaves. We're going to end our show this morning by listening to a clip from Accent of Women, where Giselle Hanna speaks with Madeline Imba and Tandiwe Abimoyo about Butch is Not a Dirty Word, a biannual publication and the project of butch activist Esther Godoy, which began here in Nam. The zine is made for and by butch lesbians and their supporters. Madeline is one of the editors and Tandy is a contributor for Issue 2. Together with Giselle, they chat about how this scene grew into a space for queer voices. What is butch? And, yeah, let's just start with what is butch? Um, I think it really, like the point of the publication, and I guess my perspective is it's a self-identification. So, you know, I guess anyone can identify as butch. The thing that drew me to the zine was my own personal experience of, uh, I guess my personal experience of being read as masculine of centre as a woman. So part of it was being read as a lesbian and any kind of issues or positive aspects that came from that, but also being read as male. The reason that I responded to Esther's call out was that I worked a lot in schools. I worked in a lot of different schools and I would um, travel around the state going into classrooms and I would often get a little bit of uh, heckling from some of the kids because I look masculine of centre and they couldn't work out if I was male or female or they thought I was a lesbian or they assumed I was a lesbian and kind of I got a little bit of abuse for that. And they're kids, it's fine. It was manageable in that context. But, you know, every now and then I'd get home and be quite frustrated by it and frustrated by the state of our education system, but also frustrated that this was an experience I was having and I didn't have a community around me that reflected it. And so when I saw the call out, it wasn't about getting my face in the zine or... Uh, you know, necessarily writing something for it. It was about finding a community because I'd spent enough time whinging that I didn't have one. I thought I'm just going to have to go and seek it out. So for me, it's about my experience as someone who doesn't look conforming in in terms of my female gender and I don't conform to what I should look like uh, or what what society feels like I should look like. And so that's my perspective on why I guess at at various points in time I have and do identify as butch. I think I would 
probably echo a lot of that in terms of it's about self-identification. I think for me, I spent quite a number of years living in the States and I think that's probably when I came into my own kind of identity um, as a butch. It was kind of handed to me. I think other people there just kind of read me and assumed I identified as butch um, and then it started to kind of fit and feel good and reflect how I kind of felt comfortable moving in the world and wanted other people to kind of read me. Um, when I moved back to Australia, I found that there wasn't really much of a community around butch identified or masculine women. Um, so when I saw the zine come together with the first issue, it was it was pretty exciting. I want to talk about Butch inside the queer and the broader LGBTI community. And I think there have been a lot of advances in the LGBTI movement. You know, same-sex marriage has a lot of traction uh, and is reaching uh, quite broad public acceptance. But with that comes um, a greater space for other issues, particularly I'm talking about... um, gender identity and a conversation around non-binary gender and transgender and so on. And do you, I, I wonder what you think and what you have to say about butch versus trans. And, and I even get the complexity of that construction as well. But do you feel like butch gets collapsed with trans at all? And then what's your response to that? You know, speaking personally, I don't want to speak for the zine, especially around issues that are so complex, but I think what the positivity of the the first and, and the second um, edition has been very much based around uh, inclusivity. So the idea that the trans movement, you're right, has gained a lot of traction in the last few years and the trans community is really coming to, into its own and, and coming to a, a really strong political space, which is fantastic. And I think that the zine is about being part of the broader queer space and around the identity of butch not being seen as a dirty word and being seen as another identity within the queer community, obviously different to trans, but also uh, something that that in some ways troubles or messes with gender. And I think the more that we can trouble gender and, and talk about that and open up a space the healthier it is. It's not about a dichotomy of, well, you're either butch or trans or those two things are in opposition. It's very much about there's room for all of them. And and I know that a few years ago I uh, tried to, to have a bit to do with a sort of butch trans kind of movement in Melbourne and went to a, a group there. And it was just assumed that I was on my way to transitioning. And there was very much that perspective that um, butch women are on the way to transition and a lot of butch women have transitioned and a lot of femme women have said to me it's so great to have this publication and this kind of visibility because I don't know where butch women have gone um, and again I don't want to come from a deficit perspective if people who identify as butch are actually change their identity or, or grow into or own the trans identity that's fantastic but there is obviously women who who see all those perspectives and who identify as butch and who feel authentically butch. And it's really nice to have a space to celebrate that identity as well as all the other kind of multitude of queer identities. What pronouns do you prefer? This is a new question. I often confuse people with my gender presentation, but twice now I've been asked what pronouns I prefer and it makes me uncomfortable. It shouldn't because they're well-intentioned. It's a way to acknowledge everyone's experiences and sense of self. And I've often felt my sense of self is lacking, so I should appreciate this effort. I hear women talk of the power of their high heels, the power of that favourite dress, and how when they're getting all dressed up, they feel sexy, powerful, invincible. I feel that way in a finely cut pair of pants, a crisp shirt and boots. 
and I can't work out what it is about a fresh, sharp haircut that makes me feel like a million bucks, but it does, and then I leave the house. Despite being used to it, it doesn't take much. A double take from a smirking teenager, a confused look from a middle-aged woman, perplexed, then disgusted. And then my swagger shrinks and the shame sets in. I suddenly feel the shame of the world seeing me as a young boy, then more shame when they realise I'm butch. My clothes can be my armour, but also my undoing. I never know how I'm going to be read, but I recognise I can recognise the revulsion a mile away. And from strangers I can sometimes bear it. The twist of the knife is when it comes from women who like it, as long as no one else can see me with them. I think most of the time they don't even know. They can't articulate the shame they feel for desiring someone who looks like me, and how that desire marks them as deviant too. At these times, I feel an intense amount of shame, shame that being asked about my preferred pronoun should counteract, but for some reason it doesn't. Asking in a queer space about pronouns doesn't stop me from being removed from women's toilets, doesn't stop the weird looks and crawling humiliation. The only thing that really stops that feeling has to be myself, has to be writing it down, has to be finding others like me and being able to speak it out loud, has to be knowing there's nothing to be ashamed of. talk a little bit about some of the taboos well just while we're talking about the com- the complexities of gender identity and and the label or the the, the identity of butch because um, I think a lot of people would also assume that that butch was femme attracted for example um, and that there is a, a whole world of assumptions associated with butch like it is inherently masculine and therefore male replicating and I wanted uh, Tandy I wanted to put that to you a little bit particularly about this idea that that butch and femme go together and there's no other way around that yeah sure um well, my partner's also butch identified, so as a kind of butch-butch couple, we have kind of confronted that quite a bit. Um, I think particularly in the States where there is this much stronger, I think, butch-femme community, it's really challenging, I think, for a lot of people in that community when there are two butch women together. Um, I think some of the reactions that we experienced over the years was reminded me, I guess, of kind of the sort of revulsion and panic that straight men sometimes exhibit towards gay men, that other butch women would kind of find the idea of two butchers together as kind of repulsive and wrong and, you know, dysfunctional um, as those kinds of homophobic attitudes. And that was really hard to deal with, especially from, you know, your friends who you kind of think you actually share a lot in common with. I think here it's less of an issue, mostly just because people maybe don't readily see us as a butch-butch couple and so are kind of surprised that we would both claim that identity. And you're also a parent, so I wonder how um, public perceptions of you as a butch parent and a butch-butch couple parenting yeah <laughs> I mean I, I don't know how many more complexities I can throw into the mix but... sure um look I think there is an assumption that you know parents and you know mothers are feminine and that they that is where the nurturing side of you know being a mother comes from and so I think if you sort of embrace your more masculine attributes that that's kind of seen as being the antithesis of being a good and nurturing mother. Um, I've been a stay-at-home mum for the last six, seven years. Um, and I think that 
certainly within the predominantly kind of straight world of mums and young kids, it's hard for people to read me as being a masculine woman. I think it's easy for them to read my partner as a butch woman because the analogy of, you know, her being kind of like their husbands or, you know, the fathers who go to work and wear a suit and tie and, you know, do stuff on the weekends with their kids is easy to understand. Um, So you just heard a clip from Accent of Women, um, which is, of course, coming up next with a fresh episode. Uh, That brings us to the end of our show. Um, We will have the podcast up later today for anybody who missed it, and we will be back again next Tuesday with another episode of Tuesday Breakfast. Stay tuned for Accent of Women coming up, and tune in to all the rest of the breakfast shows this week. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Are... 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.